Okay. So tonight, what we are going to do is, since we already uh, uh, began the month of uh, of Kislev, so, uh, and if we do this uh, once a week, so it gives us uh, uh, not that much time to go ahead and uh, prepare for Hanukkah. So I figured we should uh, get started on some Hanukkah thoughts. And that way, uh, hopefully by the time Hanukkah rolls in, uh, we will be mentally, spiritually all ready and have uh, something uh, uh, significant and important to, uh, to focus our attention on. So for this piece, as I've been telling you that I'm trying to uh, compile what I think are some of the most important pieces in Jewish thought, not just in general about the general hashkafa uh, uh, topics and whatnot, but also specifically with regards to Yom Tovim, trying to find a particular piece or a particular essay which really captures the very core and the very essence of what the, the Antif is about. And then many of the other Divrei Torah will fit into that the overall uh, structure, that overall framework. And it's, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot uh, written about Jewish thought and whatnot, but not everything is necessarily going to be as fundamental and as uh, essential as, uh, as some other pieces. So this is a piece, what we're going to do is we're going to do a piece from Rav Yitzhak Kutner, from the Pachad Yitzhak. And this piece is, uh, it, it's Hanukkah related, but here he also explains along the way, he explains many, many very important, uh, I think, fundamental concepts about the perspective on Torah, perspective on mitzvahs, perspective on Sheva mitzvahs, B'nai Noach, things of that sort, in comparing and contrasting the two to give a very deep understanding, because as everybody knows, one of the fundamental issues related to uh, Hanukkah is the philosophical debate between the Jews and the and the Greeks. And understanding that debate plays very heavily in terms of what the goal, the overall goal of the Antif is. So Futner elaborates on this uh, very much in his uh, in his distinct style. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, Futner's style. What he generally does is, the way it was described to me um, 30 years ago, probably 30 years ago already at the, at this point, is that he works in the manner of concentric circles, sort of like layers of an onion. So he starts on the outside and he asks a question, leaves that question unresolved, moves in a layer, in a layer, inner layer, inner layer, inner layer, where you're left with all these questions which are sort of rolling around in your head, and then finally he gets to the center the, uh, you know, the delicious chocolate center over there, or the delicious peanut butter center in Arises, and then you go ahead and you get that taste, and then once that uh, essential principle is clarified, then he works con- uh, progressively outwards, resolving all those earlier questions, so that by the time you're done, everything makes perfect sense. So it's a style, it's a, it's a unique style of his in terms of uh, approach. Uh, for whatever reason, can't uh, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it resonates with me uh, very much, this style and his manner of thinking. And he or his daughter, depending on who you think went ahead and, uh, and, and wrote this for him, actually uh, transcribed it, but it's written in a very poetic language as well. Something which is uh, uh, a turn of a phrase and very uh, very flowery and very a very rich uh, uh, manner of writing, which also I appreciate uh, very much. But being that this particular piece is about eight pages long, uh, we're not going to be able to read it all inside if we want to finish it by Hanukkah of Tavshin Pei Gimel. For Hanukkah Tavshin Pei Dalid, we may be able to go ahead and do so. But for Tavshin Pei Gimel, so it would be a little bit of a challenge to go ahead that, and finish that all off now. So we're going to try, and along the way, we're going to see certain parts of it and then discuss outside some of the other parts. 
Okay. So with all that introduction, so let us now jump into this particular mimer. Um, it's on the screen in front of you now? Got it. Excellent. Okay. So here, this first paragraph we have to read inside because this is really going to frame for us exactly what we are uh, exactly what we are uh, going to focus our attention on. So he says as follows: So this is this is from the paragraph of Haneros Halalu. Hopefully, the terminology is familiar with everybody here. And the translation is, these candles, the Hanukkah candles, we're just going to say candles, even though you may be using oil and it's not candles, but the Hanukkah candles, they are sacred. And we're not allowed to use them for private purposes. Their function is just to look at them. That's what the, uh, that's the translation of the uh, of that paragraph. So now points out Rufutner. Now, one of the things which you should know about Rufutner is that the, the beginning of his thought process or the development of his questions is very often rooted in critical reading. Critical reading in the sense that we're not just going to simply translate the words which are said, but we're going to think about the words which are said, why particular words were used as opposed to other words, what is said, what's not being said, how does the beginning of the sentence connect with the end of the sentence. So he very much is a a very precise reader and assumes that everything which Chazal say is done with tremendous, tremendous precision. And if you gloss over things, you're going to miss some of the essential message. So obviously, uh, you know, depending on your age, you've said Haneros Halalu hundreds of times over the course of your lifetime. Now he goes ahead and he points out that there's two different things which are being discussed in this, this sentence, really just a sentence. They are, number one is that you're not allowed to use the candles for private purposes. Then number two, the the second thing is the allowance to look at the candles. So we've got two things. One is what you're not allowed to do, private use of it. The second thing is what you are allowed to do, which is simply to look at it. Now explains Rafutner, Now obviously, the at the root of the restriction against making private use of the Hanukkah candles is the fact that they're Kodesh. Anything which is sacred, anything which is sanctified, so it's designated for its sacred purpose, and to use it for some mundane purpose is a violation of that Kedusha. So that's clearly what's going on in the background of here. Aval, hello, ena Kedusha materis riyasam. But the fact that they are Kodesh, the fact that these candles are sacred and sanctified, that's not what allows you to go ahead and look at the candles. So when you tell me, you got to take out your thumb over here. He says, when you say they're Kodesh, they're sacred, being that they're sacred, therefore, I'm not allowed to use them. So that I understand their sanctity and the, the expression or the translation of that in practical terms is, if they're sacred, I cannot use it for private purposes. But what, what does that have to do with my allowance to look at them? Because the heter re'iyah hu because what is what would be the issue to go ahead and look at your Hanukkah candles? There is no issue to go ahead and look at them. That's not a violation of the Kedusha in any way, shape, or form. Because, because looking at a sacred item doesn't violate its Kedusha at all. So why do you need to tell me that I'm allowed to go ahead and look at them? That's a no-brainer. Why, why, why does that have to be emphasized? 
Umikavan Shahetaria Enu Mishtahla Kedusha. And now this is where he gets to the, the core of his question. He says, in being that, the allowance to look at the, the Hanukkah candles is not a derivative of the fact that it's holy. So why does the author in this sentence, why does he mention anything at all about the fact that it's permitted to go ahead and look at the Hanukkah candles? The only point of saying that they're Kodesh is to explain why you're not allowed to use them to read the newspaper, to uh, to, to count your money, or to do any of those mundane activities. So that part of the sentence I understand. But the second half when it says, Ella lirosam bilvad, that has nothing to do with the fact that they're Kodesh. So why is that? Why are those three words mentioned at all? It doesn't seem to make any sense. That's Aleph. That is his opening question. Just drawing our attention to a sentence which we've read hundreds of times. And now hopefully he's saying to us, if you think about it a little bit, the second half of the sentence doesn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to fit. There's no reason that it, that it should be there. Okay. Now, as I told you, he goes layer by layer till he gets to this to the middle. So as we transition from his first paragraph, Aleph, to the second paragraph, there is no evident connection between the two at all. We're on a completely new topic. Okay. So here he says, and this we have to read the beginning also. He says, we have two halachas, two similar halachas, but again, the uh, the more so he's, he, uh, Rafutner mentions this elsewhere, that the more similar two things are, he mentions this actually in his Hanukkah Mamar, that the more similar two things are, the more subtle differences become pronounced. So whereas if you look at two people who are friends and you notice a difference in their nose, so that's not something which is going to stand out or be significant because they don't really look alike anyway, so why are you paying attention to these slight differences between their noses? But if you have identical twins, we have identical twins, and then you notice that subtle difference between this one's nose and that one's nose, that becomes much more pronounced because they look almost exactly the same. So those slight differences now become much more, much more pronounced. So here is another example of that. He says, There's a halacha. If you see a Torah scholar, a Jewish Torah scholar, Mevarach said, the bracha that you make is, bracha d'ashem akirim ha'cholam, shechalak mechachmaso l'reyav, we give thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he was chalak, he divided his wisdom to those who fear him. So that's the nusach, that's the language of the bracha, when you see somebody who is a renowned, uh, a renowned Torah scholar. Usually it's one or two in the generation, maybe, but that's something which is reserved for outstanding, outstanding tamir chachamim. Now we have a similar bracha, but different. And that is, if you see a secular scholar, somebody who's a scholar in the sciences, somebody who's a scholar in math, whatever it's going to be, if you met Galileo or something like that, or you met, um, um, got his name, or whatever. So then, so there's a slightly different wording. We say, who gave from his wisdom to people who are flesh and blood. So if you look, if you make a comparison between the language, it's one line over the other. So the Baruch is the same. The words are exactly the same in both. The word Chalak and the word Nasan is one difference. For a chacham, so we, we use the word chalak to divide by a scholar, by let's say a scientist. You say shenasan he gave, 
And then by the Chacham, it says, it's Lirea, of those who fear him. And for the, set, the scientists, you say, Basavadam, you just say, people of flesh and blood. So he says, so Rafundar points out that these differences, that one of them is that we have that different terminology, that by the Chacham, so we use the word Shechalak, we use the word Shechalak, and when it comes to the scientists, we give the word Shenasan. So again, generally for us English speakers, we're happy if we could read Hebrew and we could translate it. And if we could read and translate it, we're ready to move on. Give me more information because I'm, re- I'm on a roll over here that I could read and translate. Rav Hutner takes it for granted that we could read and translate. And he says, wait a minute over here. There's something interesting because we're making a bracha about somebody's wisdom. And seemingly, whether your wisdom in Torah, whether your wisdom in science, either way, that wisdom emanates from God. And if that wisdom emanates from God, why in one bracha do you use the word shechalak, and then, then in the other bracha you use the word shenasan? That's something which is noteworthy. The fact that they changed around their wording, that's something which, uh, which should draw our attention and say, why did Chazal do that? Why in one case do they use this word, in the other context they use a different word? Then he says another thing. He says that um, that uh, another thing which is important to note, he points out, is the fact that when it comes to somebody who is a scholar in Torah, Torah scholar, so that the brach would only be said on a Jew. If there was such a thing as a Gentile Torah scholar, you have such things, you have professors in universities who are Gentiles, but they're Torah scholars, you wouldn't say the bracha of shechalak mechachmaso lireyav. You wouldn't say that bracha. So that he says, that's that, that's Pasha. That's something which is obvious. There's no reason to think that you would say the bracha about a Baruch Hu sharing Torah wisdom when it comes to a non-Jew, because non-Jews aren't really part of Torah. It's Morashak Hilas Yaakov. He points out that the Torah is something which is inheritance for the congregation of Yaakov, meaning the Jewish people. And we wouldn't say a bracha on Torah wisdom if you saw a Gentile Torah scholar. But what is interesting, he points out, that is, and here we'll read, but on the other hand, the Brisa also emphasizes another point, which is very important to keep in mind. And that is, which is an interesting Chiddush in the opposite direction. And that is, let's say you have a Jewish scientist. That's why I didn't use Einstein before. So let's say you have somebody who is Jewish, and who is an outstanding scientist recognized and renowned throughout the world. So what bracha do you make on him? So you're not going to make the bracha on the fact that he's a Torah scholar, because he's not. But do you make the bracha on the fact that he's, an, that he's a renowned scholar of science, a, phys- a renowned physicist, which he is? So Fudner points out, and different posts can actually, uh, actually bring this down, that you would not make a bracha on a Jewish scientist. A Gentile scientist, yes. A Jewish scientist, no. Because remember, it says in the original formulation, when do you make a bracha on a secular scientist? I'm sorry, when do you make a bracha on a scientist when he's from the nations of the world? So a Gentile who's a renowned scientist, then you make the bracha of that God, but if there's a Jew who is a renowned scientist, you don't make any bracha. Not the bracha for Torah scholarship, because he's not, and not the bracha for scientific scholarship, because he's a Jew, and that bracha is only recited on it for a Gentile. So he says, 
so he, and he, he points out, he says, even though having a, an expertise in the sciences is what warrants the recitation of that bracha, the recognition that God gave his wisdom to, uh, to mankind, if the one in possession of that wisdom is a Jew, he says the very fact that the person is a Jew, that itself indicates you're not going to say the bracha on him being a scientist. So that also, Rav Hutner says, that's a curious thing. That why, if it's really thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for sharing with us the wisdom of the sciences, why does it make a difference whether or not the scientist is a Jew or a non-Jew? It's for the wisdom. So if it's for the wisdom, you should make the bracha regardless of the religion of that, uh, that uh, the, the, the scientist. Why are we discriminating against Jewish scientists when they, you can't make a bracha on them? So he asks, Mahim ha-gormim ha-pnimim shall have kazu. So Funder asks very simply, he says, I want to understand the inner workings of, or the, 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 uh, the inner mechanism of what's going on, why you would not say a bracha for a scientist who happens to be Jewish. So that's question number two. And as I said, this is com- seemingly completely unrelated to question number one about Haneros Halalu. Here he's just telling us that in, in, towards the end of the second uh, uh, volume of the Mishabura, these two brachas are brought down, and there's a couple of discrepancies between those two brachas, Shenasan Shechalak, or Lirea Vasavidam, and whether the bracha is said uh, 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 on a Jewish scientist or not. And this is something which all of this, Rav Hutner says, I'm very curious about this. Can I ask you a question? Please. When you're making the bracha, are you making it in front of the person? Um, It's when you see the person. The person person you're saying the bracha on doesn't have to hear you because you're saying the same way that you would say a bracha on lightning or thunder. So you see the presence of that and that triggers the bracha. Because I would think that if you're saying it for a non-Jew and the person heard it, then it's a Kiddush Hashem. And it makes them feel good. It makes them feel special that yeah. they're being a, they're being appreciated, even though they're not Jewish. Right. So making that's a kiddush Hashem is, is always a good thing, but that's not an essential part of right. the recitation of the bracha. But yeah. Okay. Excellent. Okay. So now Rav Hutner says in paragraph Gimel over here. Now he says this is where again he he waxes poetic. He says elu. So he says if you want the golden key not the golden ticket that gets you into uh, the chocolate factory. But if you want the golden key to be able to decipher and to be able to work through all of this, he says the, the key to understanding all this, to, to unraveling all of this, is the language of the Ramban in the Hakdama, in his introduction to a work called Sefer Melchamos. So the Ramban, for those who know a little bit about the Ramban, so the Ramban, from the time of the Rishonim, so he was an outstanding uh, Torah scholar, wrote extensively, over the course of his lifetime. And one of the things which he did was that the Riff wrote a commentary to the Gemara where he takes out much of the back and forth uh, between trying to prove uh, this opinion correct or that opinion correct or all sorts of uh, different things. And the Riff just goes ahead and records, this is the issue and this is the conclusion. This is the issue and this is the conclusion. And then on that, so you have different Rishonim who are either attacking the Riff or defending the Riff. 
So the Ramban decided with all the time on his hands, he was going to go ahead and weigh in on many Masechtas. And he wrote this work called Sefer Muhammad Hashem, which is the, a, a, a battle for the sake of God. That's the way he, uh, he described it, to go ahead and to defend the riff against his attackers. So the Ramban, Nachmanides, so he went ahead and he wrote, a, uh, he wrote an introduction to this work, explaining a little bit about why he's defending the riff and the nature of Torah. And in that, he says a profound, uh, and this was uh, when, I, when I first read it over here by, by Rafutner, again, like uh, 30 years ago or so. So it's something which was, uh, it was mind-blowing to me at, the, at, at that time. And I continue to process it, you know, 30 years later, understanding different nuances of this one statement of the Ramban, but it's something which is incredibly, incredibly important. As I've told you guys, every semester at TI, the first class, what I do is, is I explain to them how Torah works, how halacha works. And I talk about uh, essentially how Eluv Elu Divra Elukim works, how it can be that multiple opinions exist at the same time. And that entire hour and a half or two hour shear, which I, which I give, depending on how I'm feeling at the beginning of that uh, semester, but that entire shear uh, revolves essentially around this one sentence of the Ramban, even though I don't quote the Ramban directly. But he says, He says, anybody who studies Talmud, anybody who studies Shas, knows, And I don't really have a a good translation for these words. What it means is that within the, the span of Torah, there's no such thing as a definitive answer, which is absolutely true. Meaning, Kigon, and we're just going to go ahead and we'll just put this in terminology, which I think it will more easily connect with. He says, this is not, that Torah is not like math. Math, two plus two equals four. Cross-culturally, it doesn't matter when in history you are, when in the future you are, where in the universe you are, two plus two equals four. That's always going to be true. If somebody says, well, there's room to negotiate, I see two plus two as being, I identify two plus two as being five. There's no such thing in mathematics. Two plus two is four. Anything other than four is just wrong. We can say that definitively, that you cannot have any uh, answer to the equation two plus two other than being four. That's it. That's the end of the, the discussion. In the hard sciences, in physics, and in the in chemistry, there are things which are, these are principles which are true, and it's not something which is really subject to negotiation. I see it differently. I, I think about it differently. It's not up to you. It's not, it's, it's not your domain. This is what it is. What I tell them in, in TI is that in contrast to the hard sciences, where there is only one correct answer to the question, in, uh, 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 in art, so then there is no such thing as a correct answer. The example that I always give is back in the day when you would fly on a plane with, uh, with kids and they would give kids uh, four crayons and a coloring book. So they would give them red, green, blue, and yellow, I think it was, four colors that they would give them. And then that would hopefully keep the kids before they had devices so they, uh, to, to keep them busy. So they would go ahead and they would color. So if we were to give everybody those four colors and a blank piece of paper, and we we're saying to everybody here, the hundreds of people who are attending this year. <laughs> so you tell all of those people that I want you to draw, uh, uh, draw the event of Maimed Har Sinai, of Klal Yisrael standing at the foot of the mountain receiving the Torah, and you draw whatever you want. So there's not anybody in, in that, anybody at all who thinks that in a thousand years two people are going to draw the exact same picture. 
It's just not happening. There's no way, no how, the two people are drawing the exact same picture, besides the fact that I gave you four different colors. So the combinations make it uh, even more uh, even, even more unlikely. But even if I gave everybody a single pencil in a blank piece of paper, there's no way two people are drawing the exact same picture because there's no correct answer. Whatever you want to incorporate into your picture, that's your view, that's your perspective on things. And nobody can tell you that you're right or wrong or anything like that because who's to say? Maybe this, Maybe it's this way or that way. So the Ramban says that at the root of Torah, this is what he's talking about in Shas as well, in Shas and the Rishonim, that there's no way that anybody is going to be able to prove their position correct in a bulletproof manner where it is absolutely irrefutable. Everything could be argued, everything could be looked at from a different perspective, and you cannot say that there's only one perspective over here and that's correct, and everything else is going to be wrong. And this is the Ramban speaking. The Ramban, who is quite capable in Torah, who is quite knowledgeable in Torah, but he says, Anybody who's ever studied anything in Shas knows this to be true, that there is no correct answer in Torah. It's just a matter of what seems most likely to be correct and what is, uh, is less likely to be correct. But there is no definitive answer like 2 plus 2 equals 4. So now the, the Rafutner says, what we need to do is we need to explain this in our language. We need to develop this idea a little bit more. And again, eventually, this is all going to swing back around to Hanukkah and all of that great stuff. Okay. Now, so, so far, we've had three paragraphs, three different topics. Now, paragraph four, a fourth topic. So I told you that he goes, uh, you know, consecutively in with, with what seems to be disconnected ideas. And only when we get to the middle, then we'll see as he works his way out, we'll see how all this connects. So now he says, let's go topic number four. Period, hard return, new place in your brain to store this information. When the Torah, anytime the Torah talks about a covenant, which is being made between God and another party, so a bris, every covenant by definition, is eternal. means it doesn't stop, it's eternal. And it's going to continue, and he just pulls out a bunch of uh, a bunch of synonyms, Netzach, Selav, Ed, all that mean forever, and they're not going to stop. And we know what is the first covenant that the Torah ta- that the Torah addresses. So that's the covenant that God made with Noah following the flood, where he went ahead and he used the rainbow. And to uh, to uh, to communicate that he's not going, that God is not going to destroy the world anymore. Now ubebrismila shalavrama, and then the second bris, the second covenant which the Torah discusses is brismila, the covenant that Kadosh Baruch Hu made with Avram Avinu and all the descendants of Avram Avinu, kipulasam pulasolam, because in both of these instances we're talking about a covenant which is going to last forever. There's no expiration on God not destroying the world. He said, I'm not destroying the world. As long as there's a world, he's not destroying it. As long as there is a Jewish people, which will be forever, so the covenant between God and the Jewish people is eternal, is going to go on forever. So covenants are forever. That's the bottom line. But he says, if you pay attention, once again, pay attention, he's going to point out, if you pay attention to the wording as each of these covenants were formulated, so you'll take note of a slightly different way of wording it. So he says, and that is, that Hanitzchiyusa, starting from over here, he says the eternal nature of Shabrisa Keshes, 
When the Torah wants to express, when God wants to capture the idea that the bris of the uh, of the rainbow, that God is not going to destroy the world, is eternal. So the term which is used is ledoros olam, for all generations, generations for the re- remainder of the world. So there's an emphasis over here on doros for generations. That's just the word which the Torah chose. But then that's that by itself wouldn't necessarily be significant. It becomes significant when we look at the terminology, the wording which the Torah uses, which God uses when he makes the bris with Avram Avinu, then he goes ahead and he uses the language bris olam in eternal covenant. So the word doros isn't there, nothing about generations at all. It just says an eternal covenant. So one is a bris, which is going to be the doros olam, and one is going to be this eternal covenant. So he says, so this also is something which is uh, a, a discrepancy, a change in language, a change in, in sentence structure. And if there's a change in stre- sentence structure of two things which are very similar to one another, so there's something deep and profound which is present over there, and that also requires our attention. Really, if I was putting this together, I would now make paragraph number five. But he didn't do that. But again, he's going to do another thing. So he says, and this is just, again, the, 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 the beauty of his, of his writing he says, Now, in order for us to understand this pasuk, what exactly the Torah means to convey by changing the language, So we need to do is we need to review a concept and a principle which has been gone over many times in our base matters. Uh, this is taking place, I think, in the early 70s is where these Ma'amarim are from. So at this point, he had been teaching Ibn Rosh Hashiva for decades already. So he says that there are principles which we've gone over and we've reviewed and we've developed many times, and we're going to go ahead and do that again. But now he says, this is where I think it's beautiful, but everybody needs to know, even if we were to review this principle 101 times, we still would not be able to taste, we would not be able to draw the full depth of its nature and the breadth and the width of how all-encompassing this is. So as many times as, you know, the Talmudian may roll their eyes, oh, here he's going to go with that drasha again. So he's saying that before you go ahead and roll your eyes, you should realize as many times as we've been over this, we've only scratched the surface. And there's always going to be more depth, and there's always going to be more more to, to this concept. And therefore, we need to do it again, because as we develop it, so we get to see a new kinech or a new perspective, which we had not thought about before. Okay, so what is that? So this is a pasuk, very famous pasuk. God says, behold, see, I have given before you good and bad, etc., and God says, my call to you is to choose life. Choose life, choose that which is good rather than that which is bad. Okay, so now he says, he points out again, we're happy as English speakers, if we could read and translate, I'd have to take a Maharat scroll Chomish, I was able to pretty much translate that on my own, so I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty uh, pumped that I could go ahead and uh, tell my parents, their day school tuition is paid off, I could read and translate the Pasuk, now let's move on to the next thing. Rafunder says, hold on a minute, wait a minute, let's pay attention to what's being said over here because you don't want to miss something important. And that is, he says, listen, he nay kola Torah, kula li Yisrael nemra. 
Who does the entire Torah, all five books of Moses, who are they being addressed to? Who's being spoken to? The Jewish people, obviously. The Jewish people were the ones who were there at Har Sinai. They're the ones that God is addressing when he says, Anochi Hashem Elokecha. That's the one to Moshe Rabbeinu went ahead and shared with Klai Yisrael. All of that was given to Klai Yisrael. So if the, whenever you're talking about a conversation, God, Moshe Rabbeinu is speaking to the Jewish people. So that means that the entire conversation is between Moshe Rabbeinu speaking to the Jewish people. They are the ones who are listening. V'im Kain, Ba'amro Lefanecha, so then the word lefanecha, re'ena behold, I place before you. Well, obviously it's before you. I'm talking to you. Who else would it be if not you, the person that I'm talking to? It's as if I have to emphasize to those of you on this year, behold, you should know. Obviously, who else would who else would be paying attention? Obviously, this is directed towards the Jewish people. So why does it why does this idea of God saying, I'm presenting you with Bechir Chavshis? I'm presenting you with free choice, and you have good on one hand, and you have bad on the other side, and I want you to choose life. Why the introductory words, re'ei nasati lefanecha, behold, I am placing before you. It's superfluous, because who else are you talking to other than the Jewish people, and I'm talking to you, so pay attention. That's all you need to do is just say shema, you know, something like that. Just listen, listen up. Vadvar mafliim, and this is shocking, uh, on top of that, the fact that it seems to be extra, but then he says that it's also, it's astonishing, if you think about it, this the, the choices which are being presented over here, where God says, there's two things in front of you, two paths you can go by, but in the long run, but there are two paths, there is Ra and there is uh, Tov, there's good and there is bad, and then there's life and there is death, that's not something which is a unique choice that, that only the Jewish people have, because just like the Jewish people have 613 mitzvahs, and mitzvahs which they are obligated to, asay, mitzvahs los asay, things which you're not supposed to do, and obviously the good and the bad and the life and the death depends on what your choices are uh, regarding those commandments which are directed towards you. So the nations of the world, they just have a smaller scale. They have seven mitzvahs. But they also have mitzvahs where if they choose correctly, they'll get life. And if they choose incorrectly, they'll get death. So the choice between good and bad, between life and death, that's not something which is unique to the Jewish people because non-Jews, the Shev Mitzvahs Ben Enoch, present non-Jews, the Gentile world, with the exact same set of choices. It's not the same number of mitzvahs. It's not the same mitzvahs which they have to do. But in terms of this perspective, I'm presenting you good and bad and life and death. That's not, so that's not a unique set of, cho- of, of, of circumstances uh, for the Jewish people. That applies to, Jews, to non-Jews as well. And therefore, uh, why does it say, so number one is, obviously this is being directed towards the Jewish people. It wouldn't be directed towards anybody else. And then on top of that, it shouldn't be directed to the Jewish people. You directed it towards the Jewish people as if there's something which is unique. That is one question. Question number two is, it's actually not unique to the Jewish people because non-Jews also face choices. And if they choose correctly, so then they could earn for themselves eternal life. If they choose incorrectly, they could end up with death. So what exactly is going on over here when we say, he summarizes it, So how exactly are we supposed to understand this concept, this word that the Torah uses, Behold, I'm placing before you the fanecha dafka as if there's something unique about this presentation to the Jewish people. 
There's nothing unique about this at all. Just the number of mitzvahs changes. That's all that changes. But the fact that there are mitzvahs and that there are veras, and if you do mitzvahs, you earn, and if you don't do mitzvahs, you're going to uh, you're going to burn, earn and burn. <laughs> so it turns out that you're going to burn. So that's something which is uh, that, that's something which is universal. That's not the, that's not a Jewish concept per se. So that is another question which Rav Huttner goes ahead and poses. I think that was number six of the questions which require our attention to uh, to figure out. So he said, now, so he says, Amnam, now again, I don't know why he didn't make this into a new paragraph, but he says, Amnam mahalacha inyan kahu. So he says, now we're going to begin to get to the very uh, uh, essence of what the, the, uh, the principle is, which is going to help us expand. And he says, and uh, w- without reading it inside, he says that the manner by which Torah was given, so we have, let me say it this way, we have two covenants which we're discussing over here. We have the covenant which God made with the with Noah and his descendants, with the rainbow not to destroy the world. And then there's the covenant of Brismila, or what we'll call the covenant of Torah. That there's a covenant, there's an agreement between God and the Jewish people that revolves around the Torah. That's another covenant which was made. Now, Rav Hutner points out that the the creation of these two covenants happened in very different circumstances. What does that mean when we say that they happened in very different circumstances? That is because before God made the covenant of Torah with the Jewish people, he did not simply sit down and say, I'm giving you the Torah, accept it or die. There was a negotiation. God went around to the world and he said to the different nations, do you want to accept the Torah? What's written in, oh, no, 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 no. I can't handle not eating double bacon cheeseburgers. I can't handle not committing murder. I can't handle not doing Avodah Zarah. And the other nations went ahead and rejected it. And the Jewish people said, yes, we're going to go ahead and do it. So it's a it's a funny thing. Over, it's not a funny thing. But in the context of the bris that God made with the Jewish people, it wasn't imposed on us. It wasn't something which was created unilaterally. There was a negotiation between the two parties whether or not to establish this covenant or not. So God asked asked the Jewish people, are you, click here. (laughs) Do you accept the terms and conditions of this Torah? If so, click here. And everybody in Klai Yisrael clicked here. They thought they were clicking on the motorcycle and thing to identify that they're not a robot. But they went ahead and they all clicked correctly to, to prove, to say who they are. But he says, But think about it. When God went ahead and he made the covenant with the with Noah and his descendants, that he's not going to destroy the world anymore, and the sign that he's not going to destroy the world anymore is the rainbow in the sky, God didn't negotiate with Noah and his descendants, do you want to accept this covenant or not? God just said, I'm making a covenant. I'm not destroying the world anymore. I'm going to give you this rainbow. This rainbow is now going to be the designated sign of the fact that I'm not going to destroy the world. End of story. There was no participation at all in the creation of that covenant with the descendants of Noah at all. It just happened. God just created that covenant. So this is something which is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting discrepancy, which, which is very important, the fact that the bris of Torah, the bris with the Jewish people, was negotiated between the two parties. The bris with the non-Jewish world, we'll say B'nai Noach, as a non-Jewish world, that wasn't negotiated. God just said, here is the covenant. So what does this tell us? He says, that, but we see from this is, 
there she'etzem hatzivu de bnei noach that the command to the bnei noach in the mitzvahs which they were given lo yatolui klal b'shu ritzui v'askama that covenant was not created with their agreement at all. They didn't have to click anything. They didn't have to agree to it at all. Just by virtue of the fact that God created the covenant that automatically imposed on the entire Gentile world the obligation to observe the Shav Mitzvah B'nai Noach. Nobody asked them their permission. Nobody asked whether they agreed to it or not. It was just imposed upon them unilaterally like a parent will tell to their child, 7.30, you're going to sleep. We're not negotiating this. You're going to sleep. So that's what God did with the Jewish, with the non-Jews. But Shonei Mitzvah Tartayag, but that's fundamentally different than the Taryag Mitzvah, the Mitzvah of the Torah, because this was not something which, which God imposed upon the Jewish people, said, I'm giving you these 613 Mitzvahs and you must observe them. But it came to, it was a negotiation. That's why he says, a maso matan. There was a back and forth. Baal Cain, and therefore by Torah specifically, atap motze betaryag. That's why by the 630 mitzvahs, by Torah, we have this idea, this concept could exist, that you could have two different uh, perspectives. If you accept them, meaning if you conform, then you'll get rewarded. And if not, not. So that's something which is a unique part of our relationship with Torah, is the fact that we participated in the creation of that covenant. But he says, in contrast to that, when it comes to the Shev Mitzvah, there is no two parties which negotiated that, that, that agreement. God just said, this is the covenant, end of story. There's nothing to go ahead and negotiate over here. Um, you know, the, this is the way Twitter is running from now on. And that's the end of the story. We're not, there, we're not negotiating anything. This is the way I'm going to run the company moving, uh, moving forward. So he just, you know, some people just make decisions like that on their own, and they don't need the other party to uh, to participate. Um, okay, so I think this is going to be where we are going to hold it uh, for this week. We're in the middle of this paragraph, but he, he makes this paragraph two pages. So it's not my fault that it's... Uh, <laughs> that it goes on for uh, for so long. We'll hold it over here because this is a good place to to pause. Just because he's going to give a good example about these two different types of relationship: one where it's imp- where it's negotiated, and one where it's imposed upon you, or you don't really have much uh, much of a choice. So to find out uh, uh, more deeply what uh, the difference between these two covenants, and then how that's going to answer our five or six questions. So you'll have to come back next week to finish the principle and hopefully start unraveling all of these uh, these questions, ultimately leading us to the point where we are going to transform our Hanukkah thinking, and we'll understand very deeply what exactly the uh, the Yantif is about. So we'll hold it over here. Thank you again, everybody, for uh, for coming. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thursday is 8.30. 8.30. And then next week, Tuesday, once again, is 7. 7 o'clock. All the best, everybody.